Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. This episode of the Smart Economy Podcast is part of the inaugural series focusing on decentralized autonomous organizations, better known as DAOs. In the fourth and final episode of the DAO series, I chat with Andrew Redden, a journeyman developer in the Ethereum ecosystem. Throughout his time in Ethereum, Andrew has worked on various projects, but we specifically honed in on his experience with DAOs as a founding member of PleaserDAO. PleaserDAO is a collective of DeFi leaders, early NFT collectors, and digital artists who created an online community to acquire culturally significant pieces of artwork. Examples of items the DAO has acquired include the Doge NFT, the one-of-one copy of Wu-Tang Clan's Once Upon a Time in Shaolin album, and Edward Snowden's Genesis NFT, among others. In this conversation, Andrew and I discuss his background as a developer in the ETH ecosystem and why he focuses on building there, his perspective of what DAOs are, what one should consider when championing a proposal in a DAO, the process and emotions of purchasing items at auction, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. I want to make a quick note that I addressed Andrew by his Twitter handle at the beginning of the episode, not by his first and last name. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Andrew, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Uh, hey, everyone. Thanks and, and welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to introduce Andrew Lloyd. How are you doing, Andrew? Hey, everybody. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited about this one. Should be good. Yeah. You know, I haven't worked with Andrew or met him in person like some other people who've joined the pod, but we've been following each other on Twitter for a long time. And Andrew has like one of the coolest avatars. It's, it's a cat with a psychedelic background that uh, moves. So I was drawn to that and like have always been psyched to see your really cool avatar. Uh, unfortunately, we can't get those today. Did you install that in like 2013 or something? Yeah, 2010, I think. It's been, I've had it for a long time. It's like become my Twitter persona. But yeah, they, I remember reading a, of all places, I think it was like a BuzzFeed article or something. And they just mentioned that, you know, Twitter is closing the GIF loophole in a few weeks. And if you want a GIF, like now is your last chance to get it. And it wasn't like the first thing I did, but I remember like bookmarking and like, oh, I'm going to do this eventually. And then, um, yeah, it just like uh, came across it one last time. I was like, oh, I had that, all the steps needed to do that. Funny enough, it was like, a, it's not like click and upload a GIF. You had to like modify the GIF, change the alpha channels, do a number of things to like hit the Twitter requirements for actually uploading. But uh, yeah, and then I just looked up you know, silly gifts. And the cat gift was literally the first one that popped up on a page of like, you know, hundreds of gifts. And so I was just like, okay, well, I guess that's my Twitter profile. Let's see if that works. Uploaded it. And, you know, here we are uh, over a decade later and it's still what I rock online. Yeah. You can't change that because um, nobody can upload any moving files anymore, moving images. So you're stuck with it forever until you're ready to part with it. So in preparing for this interview, I took a peek at your GitHub repository or your GitHub profile, and uh, I noticed lots of Ethereum development, uh, which pretty much started around 2017, 2018. 
So can you just give us um, a background of who you are, what you do, and kind of your experience coding in the Ethereum ecosystem? Yeah, sure. It's funny. There's a, a lot of stuff still in private repos from way back in the day, but I, I've been like, uh, I'll basically give the whole like TLDR of me. I've been online since 1993, kind of like the birth of the internet, public access. Uh, you know, sort of got my start earlier than that with like BBS, but you know, you know, a young seven-year-old me just kind of cruising around the web. Um, so I've seen all aspects of the web and building on the web since like 1.0, all the way through 2.0, you know, got my start in crypto back in like 2010 and, you know, jumped into the Bitcoin ecosystem was one of the first people in my area, kind of like pushing this narrative and I literally stumbled across the Bitcoin white paper literally by accident. And I say stumbled upon because there was this old service. You could just like click a button and you could go to random websites. And literally one day it was just the white paper. And so I read it and was completely captivated by it. I remember trying to explain it to my dad and like didn't truly, I knew that I understood, but not enough to like to tell it to an individual who doesn't understand like some of the core primitives of it. And uh, yeah, I've been obsessed with cryptocurrencies ever since, been, you know, became a software developer, you know, partially by my own like hack and slash mentality, but also went to school for uh, originally networking of all things. I was a big fan of distributed systems uh, all throughout my youth and building networks for as long as I can remember. And then realized I had a really good affinity for software development. And so kind of switched gears midway through and you know transitioned to the programming aspect of my of my uh, education. And then uh, ever since then I've just been you know working one startup after the other. And uh, yeah, around 2016, I was working for a, a sports tech company and we were building a you know large scale data processor processing aggregation and reporting uh, software for the uh, basically every major sports team, you know, all the different leagues. And uh, yeah, I happened to meet a, my co-founder, uh, Scott, and uh, well, my previous co-founder, Scott, and at a meetup. And, you know, he was in the blockchain. I was in the blockchain. He was, you know, we both kind of like learned about Ethereum at the time. This would be like, you know, I think this might've been like uh, mid-2016, I think at the time. And uh, yeah, we just kind of connected. And then he wrote a white paper for a system called Hypergive. Uh, and so it's crowdfunded digital food wallets basically built like backed on Ethereum. And so smart contract based wallets have, you know, rules and permissions around how you can spend on your assets, like on, maybe on certain goods. Uh, we entered it into the the time it was like the global blockchain development hackathon uh, put on by the United Arab Emirates. And so we were fortunate enough to be chosen as one of the finalists. So early 2017, we went off to Dubai uh, and participated in the World Government Summit. We didn't win first place, but we got uh, an award for our, our innovation. Uh, we just called the Year of Giving Awards. 2017 was the Year of Giving, and uh, that kind of just like catapulted my blockchain development career. You know, I'd written some Bitcoin scripts and did some early stuff back in the day of Bitcoin, but I found really early on, like I was wanting to do more than what the Bitcoin you know technology would allow you to do, and so I kind of like was always thirsting for that next that next narrative, like what's coming, and then having gone through and you know been building software professionally for a number of years at this point in time when ethereum came on the scene it was like that aha moment for me and so we spent the rest of like 2017 we launched a company we were toying with the idea of like taking hypergive you know the full the full way we met with the un in a number of things around that capacity around how this would work specifically for the migrant crisis that was going on shortly after arab spring and trying to figure out how we could provide you know value trackable value cross-border payments kind of thing. But that ultimately led us to uh, like a dead end on that. Just we realized that the overall scale and, you know, the challenge to actually meet this was was going to be way, like really challenging, like raising capital at the time. This is pre-ICOs. 
and I guess like you know they 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 came shortly after. But when you're trying to raise money for a product that is focused on the social economy and taking care of people and that stuff, you really need to have like a really concrete business model on how you're going to generate revenue and profit. And at the time, like everything else has just started exploding in the ICO space. You know, this is like uh, late 2017, and so we kind of like refocused our efforts. We built a, a subscription service uh, that was all around the ICO like acquisition space. Uh, that exploded. We you know went viral. Uh, we ended up getting into tech stars in the back of the idea, and then in 2018 did that accelerator. Uh, and in mid-accelerator, we pivoted to a service called Groundhog, which was like subscription payments. And so, yeah, I've been building the space for a long time. You know, we, we ran Groundhog for a solid two years, uh, shipped a bunch of cool stuff, never made a dent in production. Gas prices started to becoming, you know, exorbitant. And that was really when I started to take a hard look at the space and kind of figure out, you know, what's what, what's coming. And, uh, and then I spent, I would say probably a solid, like, you know, two years post Groundhog, just kind of like trying to figure out what, 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 what was next. It's the middle of DeFi was starting to be born, you know, early days of things. Uh, I did a year at Gitcoin, uh, helped them out with some of their, of their technology uh, adoption for some distributed system work, some stuff around their grants, stuff like that. Along the way, I was an author of EI, co-author, sorry, of EIP 1337, uh, which is a subscriptions reoccurring payment standard. Kevin Iwaki, a number of people, Austin Griffith, a number of players in the space were participants of that uh, EIP as well. And then, uh, yeah, DeFi summer happened and it was crazy. Breaking into different aspects of DeFi, like lending markets, yield farming, all these different pieces of technology. And really started just to, to hack and slash my way through things and try to experiment with a whole lot of stuff and try to, you know, most importantly was like, just try to figure out where the ball is going. Like a lot of this stuff is being built at an incredibly rapid pace, but you know, none of it's really like matured or crystallized. Like every new day, you know, you may remember the the food farming Ponzi experience we had as part of DeFi summer. So she started and that was fork on fork on fork on fork. Yeah, it's, it was like went from being risk on to risk off around that time and realized that I didn't truly understand a lot of the technical aspects of what the innovation was like really trying to like crystallize around. And so I spent, I would say, a solid year while I was kind of like uh, working contract for Gitcoin, you know, really delving into the tech and just trying to like grind out my solidity, solidity skills and just try to really understand like EVM mechanics and what's actually happening at like a higher level. Like, of course, I've always like read the white papers and the technical papers and had a good understanding. But, you know, until you've been trying to deploy a lot of your own capital through things and, and what goes on, it's hard to get like a you know, like a clear understanding of, of, of the challenges that you actually face. And that led us into like, uh, you know, the algo coin winters. And I built my own yield aggregator at the fork of the urine V1 for a number of different like algo coins in the space and sort of like farming these, these new novel mechanisms for stable coins. And uh, that was like the big aha moment for me was that flipping bits in this virtual computer generates significant profit if you know what you're doing. And so I started looking into like MEV trading and front running and, you know, I've gone the real, the full gamut in terms of what's happening. And uh, yeah, then shortly after that was uh, we started getting into the middle of the pandemic and that was like the builder hat went on pretty squarely and just kind of really like focused my efforts on like layer twos, what's coming up with the scaling wars, DAOs started happening and started, you know, 
really kind of delving into what these new mechanisms could be. I was a big fan of like Aragon's technology stack in the early days. Started building some Aragon apps to try and figure out, you know, what may be what may be next and how could we use these technologies to really like drive value. You know, I didn't really have anything in, in mind that I wanted to build. It's really weird. I'm I'm generally a generalist when it comes to things, but then sometimes I find something that like, you know, makes you want to become the specialist or the expert in that thing. And DAO tooling was one of those things that I really focused on aggressively for I would say the majority of 2020. You know, I participated in the RDAO ecosystem, uh, sorry, RDAI, and uh, you know, they're like a you know streaming money platform, and we wanted to build a DAO around it and how that would actually like bring forth you know larger participation. And that was always something that really like really stuck with me because the ICO boom taught me that. Like generally, if you want to launch a token and you want to raise capital around that token, you know, you're in for a seven year, like seven year ride. And if you don't have a value or a business plan that'll drive value long enough, like the likelihood of you succeeding is very low. But then when DAOs emerged, it was kind of this like the eureka moment of the ICO boom where you are able to put the decision making powers into stakeholders that other earn their way in or buy their way in. And that really like transformed the narrative around what a business could or couldn't be. And the concept of a company just kind of like dissolves into the background. All of a sudden the network emerges. And so I think that was, you know, that was one of the more transformational years in crypto, I would say, is the emergence of DAOs. You know, we all remember the most infamous DAO from 2016. You know, Bitcoin Maxis love to throw it in our face at every chance they get. But uh We've come a long way since the twenty six the era of twenty sixteen DAOs to where we are now, and you know there are the DAO tooling is is ridiculous at this point in time. But yeah, I would say I've just been a lifelong hacker, hacker entrepreneur. I fell in love with crypto at an early early phase of my life, and I've just been kind of like dedicating my life to you know always being at the forefront and being you know the best I can be at it. That's cool that you have um, that experience with Gitcoin. Obviously, Kevin is based in Boulder, and I've been to meetups with. Uh, that Austin Griffith has hosted where we spun up a burner wallet and I was able to buy beer using dye. And Kevin's also been on the previous iteration of this podcast. So it's it's cool to kind of see that you have that. For me, it's a local relationship, but that you've you put in time with Gitcoin, uh, the work that they've done with the quadratic formulas and the way that you know people who aren't necessarily whales or have smaller amounts of money can make more of an impact on projects they want to support. That was kind of one of the many aha moments I've had throughout my journey in cryptocurrency, which I started in 2017 during the ICO buzz. Um, boom. So before we kind of go into DAOs, which you started alluding to, I did just want to talk about your experience in Ethereum and maybe just help me understand a little bit better. When I first started using cryptocurrencies, CryptoKitties clogged Ethereum, and that's what led me to learning about other L1s and using other networks. Um, and then I started to better understand speed. Even if it's not decentralized, the network, the speed was better and the fees were cheaper. So could you just share with me a little bit more about your insight into why Ethereum is still such a competitive blockchain, even though it has what some might consider barriers to entry, mainly cost, and maybe what keeps people around in that ecosystem and or why are more developers still joining Ethereum each month? It's still on aggregate, accumulating more and more developers than any other chain, despite these perceived flaws. Yeah, CryptoKitties was wild. It was like the first killer app. 
that, that attracted a user base that was voracious. And now it didn't have long staying power. You know, CryptoKitties today, their overall transaction volume is like super low. But it isn't because CryptoKitties was like, you know, a fad. I think the cost that ultimately transacting on a clogged network, it really scared away people because especially if you're a retail participant and, you know, I was for a long time and I consider myself still a retail participant in a lot of aspects, but as a developer, so let's flip it around. Let's go from the developer aspect first. From a developer, learning solidity is incredibly easy. So if you have a good fundamental understanding of virtually any language, you can pick up solidity in a few weeks. Now, to master solidity, obviously, there's nuances you have to learn about the EBM and different aspects of like the patterns that are good and that are bad. There's a lot of like gotchas, like you know, infamous the DAO hack, the reentrancy problem. And that's, I think, why it has such high staying power is that a developer onboarding to the ecosystem has this amazing connected composable virtual machine that has a plethora of pre-built, pre-deployed experiences running with billions of dollars associated to them today. So the cold start problem, it's more like a warm start problem for a new dev coming in. There's tons of examples. The, the, the overall footprint of deployed uh, real-life production infrastructure is incredibly high. That is not possible to copy and paste and put anywhere else. You can fork a protocol, but it's really hard to fork a community. And so the more connected this community gets, the more likelihood that people are going to, sorry, increases the likelihood that new entrants are going to want to join that community. And so retail is, chases whales. And so early devs in Ethereum, by and large, have become whales. And Ethereum itself doesn't really give you a good reason to leave because there is some upper bound on cost. And I, I think I've tweeted it a few times, but you know, one of the biggest misnomers around costs, and it's funny, if you look at the cost, Ethereum is actually still pretty cheap. But if you do like complex DeFi operations, it's expensive. Right. If you look at like a trade on a stock market, depending on where you're trading, you know, it's anywhere between zero dollars to ten dollars per trade. Doesn't matter if you're trading a hundred shares or trading one share, you know, there is some subliminal cost. Those costs though for financial transactions are all tax write-offs. So really at the end of the day, you're just spending money that you're getting back on the other side of things from your from the government on your income. You can claim all those expenses. So that was one of the aha moments for me was that when costs started to become crazy, you know, like I spent way more money than I wanted to this year and last year on, 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 on gas fees. But every dollar I spend on gas fees is a dollar I'm not paying in taxes. And so that I think is what is, is, is keeping a lot of participants available and in the space is that the traditional system understands financial operations and the, from the tax aspect of things really well. But retail doesn't care about that aspect of things. They don't have enough money invested in the ecosystem to truly care. And so that is when, like, I think when these fees become problematic for retail and they, they want to look elsewhere for L1 chains, it's often because they're trying to get rich quick. And, you know, this is obviously stereotyping in a lot of aspects, but like the old meme of like, oh, I invested 250 in Ethereum, where's my Lambo? It's only, it's been five minutes already. Like, when you talk to a lot of people, they think that we're still in this nascent 
2013, 2016 window where, you know, you can buy $20, $30, $50 of Bitcoin, wait for a decade, and then you're going to be rich. And it's not that there aren't opportunities out there, because I never want to discourage anybody from trying to find gems. But I just truly think that that is like a, a, a broken mentality to have to approaching this space. You know, blockchains are now just another tool in the toolbox. So to just roll back a little bit. So my understanding of how things in the CryptoKitties moment, when fees started to go crazy high, I looked up at the space and said, okay, how good is the technology we're actually using, right? Like, the reality is it sucks. And it still sucks today. But it's the best sucking thing we have. And that is a really powerful thing because in Ethereum, the community by and large is willing to accept we have problems. But more importantly, we're willing to build solutions to try to solve these problems. Like thinking that Ethereum is done or will be done anytime soon, I would say is, is, like a, is, a, is a false notion. Will Ethereum get ossified at some point in time? The L1 will get so concrete that there's, you know, we've, we've hit some innovation threshold where changing things is actually bringing more complexity and diminishing returns to the upgrades? Probably. That is just a reality of where we'll get. But if you compare the ecosystem from Ethereum to Bitcoin, the Bitcoin ecosystem believes that Bitcoin, by and large, is perfect and that changes to Bitcoin don't need to exist. Satoshi gave us the holy grail and it is perfect. Ethereum, by and large, its community and its governance model is way more technocratic. And we say that we want to build the best possible technology virtually at any cost. We want to be able to have a global sediment layer. We want to be able to have this global virtual machine, the world computer. And some of the ways that we've marketed Ethereum and spoken about Ethereum to the general public, I'd say would have done us a disservice, by and large. The world computer narrative, most people don't buy into it because the likelihood that we're actually going to be able to do generalized large-scale computations on Ethereum, not very high. But what we can do is validate proofs that completely obliterate our need to do large-scale computations on-chain because we can just prove that the computation is correct, it was done elsewhere. And that is a fundamentally very powerful component to system design, is that we have a way to alleviate pressures that exist on L1 transactions by enabling them to be verified on-chain and computed elsewhere. And so like this hit me early in to the scaling debates and the scaling wars. And I said to myself, like, I, of the conversations I've had with members in the community, people are so aware of the actual problems that they're like devoting literally all of their time and their energy to trying to solve them. And if that is where the mind share is, is willing to be the self-aware wolf in this case and say, yeah, this technology is not the best, but I truly believe that we can make it the best. And you get enough people that want to buy into this concept and not even about buying into a, like a finished product. They're buying into the concept of a lifelong journey of improvement. That is where magic happens. You know, I've been on teams of developers where people say like, and you have one person who is incredibly negative along the way and tries to pull the conversation down, says, oh, it can't be done, shouldn't be done, whatever. That is like the perfect example of like a, a Bitcoiner. They say, oh, no, you know, like the complexity is too high. But if you get enough people that are willing to work together and dig through the complexity and try to you know, instill it down to its most simplest forms and build something tangible, even if it fails, but they're, they're willing to take that risk, like that is where all the upside histories come from, people willing to take those monumental risks. And so I think that's what keeps Ethereum so relevant and competitive 
is that we're willing to be wrong and we're willing to continuously work towards what we believe is right. And a lot of other chains just aren't offering that same level of community. And not to mention the Ethereum community by and large is incredibly diverse. You know, we're very much open to all aspects, all spectrums, all questions, all challenges. We're willing to be wrong, you know, and I don't know if I've ever found that in any other ecosystem, you know, and like, I always say like, I'm not a maxi, but your tech sucks. And so like, I look every day for what's going to kill Ethereum and what's going to be the next best platform to build on. And the day that we find something that truly is able to, to hit metrics that outperform Ethereum and more importantly, outperform the Ethereum community, like I'll divest, I'll go and I'll build. But like, I haven't found it and I've been looking for it since I discovered Ethereum. It's like, okay, wow, Ethereum is amazing. This new technology, we're having scaling problems. You know, uh, We're not going to you know, hit sharded uh, chains quite the same way that we thought we were. We're looking at a roll-up centric future. Most importantly, it's like we're actively developing. We're not hanging our hat on any laurels. You know, we're not claiming that we know best because nobody knows. The market knows. The market figures it out rather. And so Ethereum as its community is willing to be wrong and willing to fight for what they believe is right. And so I think that that is a really powerful combination and one that you just can't fork and you can't replicate. And that is why we attract more devs every quarter. If they want to come build on Ethereum and more capital comes in to, end, to this platform than anything else. Bitcoin Miami just happened again, their conference. And there was a panel. People asked about how many people hold Bitcoin. It's like, you know, a very few number of hands go up and that was in the camera shot. And then they just said a curiosity asked how many people hold Ethereum. It's like 90% of hands shot up. So it just goes to show that it's like, we may not have the mainstream narrative when it comes to adoption, but we do have the retail and we do have the mind share. And I think that is what really is going to keep us going for quite a long time. Yeah, it sounds like that layer zero, as the Bankless podcast calls it, or that social cohesion and composability is just kind of untouchable right now because it's hard to build those network effects from scratch. So we're here for, to talk about DAOs, and they were obviously born on Ethereum as we know them today. Uh, not the concept of governance, but DAOs, uh, the, the code. So, you know, this is a really complex subject. So maybe we can just start off really quickly with, in your definition, what is a DAO? Sure. A DAO stands for a decentralized autonomous organization. But more importantly, a DAO is an ecosystem of participants that are able to have a voice through direct democracy. And so this concept of like, you know, not necessarily one voice, one vote, but capital is speech. And through that, you're able to have direct action. And so literally putting money where your mouth is. Cool. So you've, you've obviously been around the crypto and blockchain space for a while. So maybe asking about the first DAO that you heard about is probably going to be the DAO from the DAO hack. Uh, so maybe what was the first example of uh, the first DAO you started working on? And was that before the 2020 kind of DAO boom? Yeah, it was right around that time, actually. So my first active participation in a DAO itself I don't know. It may have been our die, but that was like they didn't really necessarily transition to a full DAO with like voting and governance. I would say it may have even been Pleaser DAO was my first true active in 2021 active participation in a DAO. So for me, like what I found about DAOs is you have to believe in what you're participating in to actually be like an engaged, an engaged participant. It's one thing to hold DAO tokens. It's another thing to like actually go vote on a proposal, to dig in, to care. But uh, 
you know, I was uh, I was an early member of the Gitcoin DAO. You know, full disclosure, I've since divested, but I participated in Olympus DAO. You know, voted on a number of proposals along the way there. Pleaser DAO, still an active participating member. That may be it for my large scale participation in things. I participated on some anons and some you know random DAOs that never really got off the ground too too much, but. But largely for my public personas and whatnot, you know, Pleaser DAO is where I, you know, spend a lot of my time. You know, I had like, I think I have 100%, or maybe that's not true. I didn't have my hardware wallet with me during one voting session before my delegates kicked into my active wallet. So I think I missed one vote out of all the Pleaser DAO votes. You know, Gitcoin, I was an active participant in the governance structures uh, when they launched into a DAO. I believe a lot in Gitcoin DAO, actually. I think it's going to be one of the more prolific DAOs along the way. I would love to have seen more like financial engagement from the yield farming DeFi aspect of things with, with all DAOs to Gitcoin DAO included. You know, I tried to spearhead some initiatives along the way, but you know, ultimately like that's the beauty of a DAO is that one participant wanting something doesn't enable it. And so if there's not a buy-in of the crowd, uh, wisdom of the crowd generally trumps out. And then, uh, yeah, I divested more for financial reasons, you know, hard to turn down capital when the market's hot. But I had a new baby at the same time. And so it's one of those things where I'm like, ah, I'm not able to make community calls and able to participate in these different things. You know, being a steward is is a very publicly facing, publicly exposed thing. Being a protocol politician is is great in some aspects. It's not so great in others. You know, I had an incident where I put up a proposal to liquidate Akita tokens that were sent to the Gitcoin DAO. Uh, Vitalik had, was given a number of dog tokens over the years. Uh, and he donated a bunch of them to the Gitcoin uh, treasury. And so, you know, I was just did some quick napkin math and I was like, man, like we should just be liquidating, like we should just market up all these because there's millions of dollars of capital that can be captured for open source. We can put it towards good use, public goods, all that stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of blowback because there's a huge community around Akita that I'm not aware of. And so, but I, I'm like the, became a, you know, ultimately a figurehead for this proposal and for this decision. And, you know, the number, the amount of hate messages, you know, why are you trying to destroy this ecosystem, blah, 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 you know, came flooding in. And I was like, wow, like, you know, this is a really volatile position to be in. Like, just purely by participating and having an opinion, I became the bad guy. And so that was not something that I was really necessarily interested in being on the ride for. But I helped the proposal get across the line to where it needed to be. Ultimately, we came, I think, to what was a good decision for both Gitcoin and the Akita community. There was a number of mechanisms we put into place that allowed them to participate. You know, we even had some blowback around a number of these participation, uh, sorry, a number of these mechanisms because my proposal was intentionally vague. And so I was saying like, this is what I believe we should do. I put up a vote. We had a number of people actually, you know, vote in favor of this concept, but my proposal didn't have an execution. So like how we would actually do this. So there was a number of things I didn't want to have happen. Like, I didn't believe we should be burning tokens. I didn't believe we should be destroying value. We should be capturing that value. Even if by capturing that value, we're destroying value in another community. I was less worried about or less focused on the, you know, the needs and wants of the dog token holders and more focused around where my own incentives align, which is in Gitcoin down. And we had some internal strife around that, given that one of the overall mechanisms we ended up creating was like a buyback and burn system, which I felt was actually in spirit of my initial proposal because we weren't burning tokens directly. There was a way that Akita community could buy some of these tokens back from us and we would burn a composite amount, as well as providing enough like liquidity for a bootstrapping pool to actually 
facilitate like divesting over time. So I, what I thought was, you know, in the spirit of my proposal that had passed and was a win-win, ended up having a lot of, you know, conflict and gripe because just because I believe that the outcome or the execution is in the spirit of my proposal didn't necessarily mean that that should have been the path forward. Ultimately it was, but it was weird. Like governance is so new. We didn't even have like, I mean, I think my proposal was made on like day three or day four or something like that of the Dow being live. And so there was no process in place by how we should even, you know, carry out proposals that are passed. And so, you know, that was when I realized that it's like, holy shit, like the person who has the proposal that gets passed has to help facilitate and execute this proposal. Like I was on hour long calls regarding, you know, how we do this and like, the time sink is incredibly high and you're not being paid for any of this, right? And so your only incentive is the assets you hold and you wanted to do right by them, which is good in some in some respects, but for the amount of time and energy that had to be spent in, like it's not worth it in a lot of cases. You have to be literally of the mindset to be attacked publicly all day, every day and be okay with it. And it wasn't, it wasn't bad at first, but then it wears on you when you like, come in in the morning, you've got 99 new messages, you know, 20 DMs and everyone's just like, you've been tagged in threads, but how you're a huge asshole and all these things. And it's like, wow, like, you know, this space is incredibly toxic. Like, I don't, I don't want this, like the best opportunity I can, I'm divesting my position and I'll no longer have a voice in this community. And so, you know, I, I think with that moment a lot, actually, whether or not that was the right choice to make, you know, given that the, the community is so vibrant and that perhaps I should have like kept some vote around, whatever. But ultimately, I think it was the best choice for me and my needs at the time, and, and you know, led me to a better place. You know, fin- a financially, but you know, b I would say spiritually on the developer side of things. It freed up my mental capacity to to really focus on things that I cared about, as opposed to you know, feeling financially tied to this vote and to have to participate. Because if you aren't, you know, hands on the steering wheel, the value could just like disappear overnight because someone drove, drove you off a cliff. So that was really like an interesting crash course and learning experience through DAOs is that uh, just because you are financially motivated doesn't mean that you should stay motivated for those causes. Sometimes it's just best to cut and run. Yeah, that brings up an interesting question. You know, I'm thinking of the Constitution DAO. And, you know, when you formulate these communities that are based around an idea or an ideal, oftentimes you're going to need to have individuals carry them across the goal line. So like you were just saying, you know, once once your proposal goes through, then oh no, I have to sit here and facilitate this. But like with the Constitution DAO, you know, there needed to be someone who was going to these auction houses. There needed to be lawyers that were in person physically representing this DAO. So is that something that you find is sort of a key element for uh, successful DAOs, particularly ones that interact with the real world or have real world uh, repercussions? Do you need to have some sort of like uh, established representative or leader at the top? Is this something that every DAO should have? What, where do you kind of stand on that perspective? Yeah, and it's a tricky one because real-world assets require real-world people to facilitate. Somebody has to be signing a contract somewhere. I don't believe you need to have an individual though. So I think one of the best patterns that's kind of emerging is a company that provides services for a DAO. So basically you would have a service provider who, in a great example, we'll use Constitution DAO. They had a representative who was like a proxy who was voting on their behalf on the floor. 
and I believe her name was Brooke. I think that's who was facilitating the vote for, uh, sorry, the uh, the bids for Constitution DAO. And she provided a service to this DAO. And I don't know her fee or what if there was a fee or what it was. And maybe she worked and employed by Sotheby's or the auction house at the time. But this concept of a service provider is an interesting legal argument and legal framework that you can apply these things. Because as a company, you can work in service to virtually anything. You can work in service to a corporation, to a person, to a trust, to a will, to an estate. And so why is a multi-sig or a DAO any different, right? If you're providing under contractual guarantee, some service where some entity through some capacity, be it an individual or a lawyer or someone acting as a representative for, again, another service provider. So if if the, the vote didn't happen because the person you know on the floor didn't do their job, then another uh, another service provider, a lawyer, could be hired to bring suit against that other service provider on behalf of this entity. And so you may not need to have a legal entity for everything, you know, for hosting agreements. You can pay somebody to enter into an agreement with Amazon to provide infrastructure support and to run your code. Now, is that necessarily the best? I don't know. But it provides an interesting argument around how you may not need to have a legal entity that facilitates that initial arrangement with Amazon. You can hire a service provider that's an Amazon reseller and they want to accept pizza payments and they're willing to do interactions with the DAO. Then that service provider can can sign off on that, can pay the bills on your behalf, can provide you infrastructure, give you API key access, whatever your developers may need to deploy and ship code without the DAO itself ever actually owning anything. However, there are other aspects of DAOs where a DAO may actually want to own something and it not be the service provider. So you may have to have a holdings company. You may need to have some legal entity or representative. Again, it's almost in a service provider capacity, but you could you could facilitate it through some kind of trust where the trust is like literally required through its constitution to execute the wishes that come from this multi-sig, from the votes that are passed by these entities, literally written into the trust's entire purpose for existing. We see that a lot with like uh, Tezos is one of the ones that comes to mind. They raised a ton of capital. They set up a trust in, uh, sorry, foundation in Switzerland. And the foundation had very clear goals. And Swiss foundations are designed in a way that, you know, they can be these hands-off entities that are, that have to, have to execute on their, their mandate. And so there are a lot of legal structures that can be put up and facilitated around DAOs without there having to be a company that is, quote unquote, the DAO. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that you have to have a figurehead. It certainly makes things easier if you do. If you look at MakerDAO in its uh, most recent initiatives with real world assets, it, in, it engaged through, I think it's called 6S Capital is the structure of uh, legal organizations or legal frameworks, uh, sort of legal companies that are set up. But they facilitate like a $7.8 million loan with Tesla to build a service center. And so this is MakerDAO, the platform, whitelisted basically commercial paper through this company. So this company has presumably a multi-sig or some address that is able to mint die to be able to give that die, that capital, to its partners to its contractually obligated entities 
which in this case is Tesla. There's a few other ones. They also had one where they, you know, 20 million die or something like that to build uh, windmills or green energy off. So think of solar actually outside of New York. And so, you know, there are structures in place that allow for entities to provide service and be permissioned or have, you know, executive privileges inside ecosystems without completely dismantling the decentralized nature where, you know, these companies, for instance, they could just go and mint up to the maximum amount of capital and go liquidate it and spend it, but they would have legal recourse given the fact that, you know, there's a, a trust is established that is required to execute certain actions. And then the trust maybe is the board or controls the, you know, who can sit on the board. And so there are legal frameworks that, uh, that can help. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, it really comes down to what is your DAO doing and how much do you need to be backed by lawyers? Because that's ultimately what it comes down to is that, you know, if you need to do something and you're the only recourse you have is law, so the legal system and the lawyers that sit on top of it, it does come into question some of your decentralization uh, components. Now, if it's in a smaller capacity like service providing and there's a way that you can, you know, mitigate the fallout, like a good example is like, if you were Uniswap and you conduct the Uniswap DAO and you contract Uniswap Labs to pay for the, the domain name, and then the Uniswap team ships malicious code, what legal recourse does the Uniswap DAO have against Uniswap Labs for shipping malicious code that stole everyone's money? And you know, I don't know that answer ultimately, but presumably there would be uh, some capacity at some point in time where Uniswap Labs had agreed to be a service provider to the DAO and provide, you know, some standard of care, some software license agreement, like you see in a lot of traditional businesses. And so, yeah, there's arguments you made on both sides of this. Uh, I think ultimately, though, as long as the, the legal system isn't your only means of executing on your initiatives and your goals, then, you know, you're, you're still fine in terms of being under the DAO monk here. Yeah, we alluded to this earlier. There's DAOs for all sorts of different purposes. So that's kind of why I was really excited to have you join the Smart Economy podcast because you are a member of PleaserDAO and PleaserDAO kind of came onto my radar after purchasing, was it some sort of Snowden NFT? Yeah, the Edward Snowden NFT that was produced. Yeah, and then obviously, like I don't know about obviously, but I'm a huge hip hop fan. So obviously the Wu-Tang album too made a huge splash. So could you just tell me, what is PleaserDAO and how did this group of individuals come together with this mission to purchase art that they feel needs to be preserved? Yeah. So PleaserDAO is, uh, you know, to use our own tagline, is a cartel of peeps who aim to please. You know, we are um, a radical group of, I would say, crypto native, non-native, new to the space, you know, luminaries who just believe in doing Willy Wonka-esque crazy cool stuff. Uh, it started in uh, March of 2021. People Pleaser, who, for those who don't know, is a very talented artist who kind of cut her teeth into the NFT space early on. She did a lot of uh, really cool NFTs for emerging uh, communities, like the, a lot of the Yearn NFTs, Pickle Finance, a lot of that kind of stuff, kind of like bringing these ecosystems together. And so it was announced that she was producing uh, an NFT video for the Uniswap V3 launch. And for those of us who went through DeFi summer, Uniswap was an integral part of the explosion of DeFi. You know, permissionless markets is a huge component 
you know, everything we use today. I mean, people that are listening to this probably use Uniswap two or three times a day. But back then it was like this radical transformation. And so V2 had been out for a full year. You know, we heard rumors about V3 coming down the pipe, you know, having all these new components to it. You know, no one really knew 100% what was coming. And so when it was announced that there was this NFT drop happening for it, at first it was like, wow, like that's an amazing, like, amazing way to launch this. But then when you find out that the artist is people pleaser and kind of dig into more of her history and what she's done, you find out that she's this amazing visual effects artist, you know, and she's done work for a number of large companies and had produced something that was like awe-inspiring. But then the reality hit, and you're like, oh, this is just going to get bought by some whale and it's never going to see the light of day. And so, you know, it was like, goes to the back of your mind for a little bit. You're like, oh, okay, well, I mean, it's going to go for a few hundred thousand dollars. Like, I don't know who wants to just drop that or who can just drop that on an NFT and be like, yeah, there's no market for this. It's just going to sit forever on the shelf somewhere. And then Leighton Kuzak, the founder of Pool Together, put out a tweet asking if anyone wanted to like, you know, pool money and buy this. And so I know Jameis Johnson, a prolific member of the space. I met him when I was in DevCon in Osaka. And uh, he reached out and was like, yo, are you like interested in like getting in on this? I know you've been around the bend and you may, may appreciate this. And I was like, man, this is absolutely like, you know, this is a chance to actually like own something of what I would consider like historical significance in our space. And it was like this radical ragtag approach to like getting capital in. Like, you know, we had EOA wallets. That we were just like wiring ETH2 and you like don't know these people. You're just like YOLO. And um, you know, me and my business partner at the time decided this was like a worthy endeavor. And it exploded. Like it became something huge. I think bigger than any of us ever expected off the get-go. Like those first few moments when we were in there, like the bidding war, like every time there's an auction, it's always stressful. And so like, you know, we're like spinning up notes safe. Like anyone know how to do this? Like grabbing Twitter handles, Reddit handles, like, you know, we need a web address. We need to like somehow like look legitimate more so than we, uh, than we were at the moment, because it's like, I think there was like 10 or 11 of us at the, at the moment at the early days. And then, um, yeah, we were going through and like bidding on these things and we're trying to figure out how to do it in a way that we can like, you know, use a multi-sig, but like foundation didn't support like wallet connect time. So it was like, couldn't really connect these things. So like, uh, I think we, one of the early members was like Alex from like Nansen or something. And he was like, well, I have like a doxed wallet that I use. And it's like, you know, I'm like, if you want, I can bid on this. And so like, we just like sent all of our money to this TOA and we went through a bidding war and, you know, I think we spent like 500 K or something. And every time that we were like, we get outbid, it was like, who do we know that's got like, I'll just, yeah, I'll just YOLO this random crypto into this, you know, thing. And so every time that we would like, there'd be a bidding war. And it, what was really impassioned about this is that when we would outbid somebody, we would start a DM with them and be like, yo, you want to join? And so all of a sudden, it's like you take out the next big competitor and then you add their capital to the pool. And then that's your next like salvo to fire to take out the next person that's trying to like, trying to chew you out. And so it became this like, it's like a war in, in, in an essence because it's like you defeat an opponent and then you're like, yo, join us. Like, you know, we can go further together. 
And, you know, that was like the, the really early days of, of Clueless onboarding. And, you know, we had no mission beyond acquiring the V3 NFT. Like that was, you know, that was the whole purpose of creating this thing because pleaser or people pleaser was, you know, the artist involved. We figured we would name the DAO after her and call ourselves pleaser DAO because, you know, we really just rallied to purchase her artwork. And then it was funny when, you know, we're, we're like, okay, we bought this thing and it's like, it's official. It's confirmed. Like it's us. I remember we invited uh, people pleaser into the telegram chat. The publisher probably hate that I'm telling this story, but, uh, Admittedly, it was probably pretty overwhelming. You have this group of people who just spent half a million dollars on your artwork and they like want, like want to chat with you and congratulate you. And so it's like, oh yeah, you know, this is dope. This is awesome. And she's like, well, it's really nice. Thanks everybody. Bye. Like leaves the telegram completely. It's gone. And we're like, oh, it was like the opposite experience that we expected we would have here. Like, you know, we thought that this would be like the burgeoning of something much more, which it did end up that way. But it was kind of funny at first, like, you know, you have these, I think it was like 12 or 14 of us at this point, random individuals who just bought your artwork and are you know, invite you to this random telegram and it's full of people that you have know and, you know, seen online. And, and then, uh, yeah, it became something pretty special after that, you know, governance came into play, which is cool. So we tried to figure out like what was what we didn't completely expend our entire treasury on the first purchase. So we had like, as we acquired new people, they, they based whatever they had bid previously for the NFT, they acquired it and deposited it into our treasury. And then next thing you know, it was like, well, shit, like, I guess we're probably going to start a DAO then. We need a token. We need to like divvy up how this is working. The token didn't come right away. It came like after I think a couple rounds of acquisitions and stuff. It was one of those things we just kind of facilitated. Went from like a spreadsheet, eventually became uh, <laughs> an initial token allocation that everyone had uh, got distributed. We started snapshot voting. We elected uh, our chief pleasing officer, Jameis, at uh, one point in time. I think it was like week two or something in the actual phase. I don't even know the, the chronological timeline of artwork, but I think the next one was Snowden. And we found out that Snowden was doing NFT. And the cool thing was, is that the press picked this up, like, because they were like, what just happened? Like a group of random people came together and you know, there was no party bid at the time, which those of you out there may know that party bid is a big technology that allows anyone to contribute and purchase things. We talk a lot about Constitution DAO. They raised their capital on party bid to buy the Constitution. And so it was cool to see like, you know, see the emergence of these tools coming based on the fact that, you know, we had manually gotten together and, you know, facilitated these purchases. And then when Snowden came out, I remember this day, like, you know, every day that we had an auction, it'd be like, tell all my friends and families, like, I don't know when I'll be available, but if you need me, like, you've got to give me at least hours today. Like, I don't know when I'm going to be going to sleep. You know, we're bidding on this piece. My family's like, what do you mean you're bidding on this piece? And I'm like, oh yeah, we're like, I'm an art collector now, apparently. And so Jesse Powell was like the arch nemesis of our bids along the way on a number of pieces. And uh, yeah, we were like bidding up the Snowden NFT. And we were like 12 people that are checking the chain to see when Jesse's like reloading. And you're like, ah, 200 more Ether just got slammed in from Jesse. And it's like, what are we going to do? So I won't name names specifically, but one of our now DAO members like loaned the DAO a thousand ether, just like ah uh, yeah, I'll just I'll I'll uh, I'm in for a thousand ether. You know, it's a loan though, so you got to pay me back. But like I'm in. I want I want into this thing. I want Snowden NFT to be a part of it. Like let's get it. And so like I can say I can say this. It's all on chain. You can see the transactions. And um, I was like, man, we just had like that was a powerful moment. Like you just literally had someone be willing to wire you a thousand ether to go buy an NFT and. It's like social contract 
is what we're all bound under. You know, we have no, there is no like agreement we've signed. There's no nothing. It's just like, yo, we're going to buy the NFT, right? And we're going to like figure it out. And so we're like, yeah, well, we're going to do something and we're going to figure out how to raise capital and we'll, we'll pay you back. And so they set some like, you know, nominal interest rate. And it was like, cool, I'll lend you a thousand ether and you guys can figure out repayment terms. And so I think that that was in like May of 2021 was in I think May 25th, summer's around there, shortly after my birthday, summer's around that timeline. We're like, okay, cool. Well, we like bought the Snowden piece. Now we have like this crazy debt we got to figure out. And like, well, I'm sure we'll get there, that kind of thing. And then we got word that the Doge NFT was being auctioned. And it was like, well, we wanted to do a repayment strategy and we wanted to like figure out how that was all going to work. But it's like the Doge NFT is like a must get. So it's like, you know, we, we have a vote, right? It's like, do we like repay the loan or do we like go buy the, Do- the Doge NFT? And it was like, I wouldn't say controversial, but it was like, uh, you know, some of us are like, man, well, like, you know, <laughs> we have this massive quote unquote debt now. We got to figure out how are we going to like repay that specifically. And then it was like, it didn't matter though, because the Doge NFT was like so must have. It was like, ah, then we'll just figure out the debt. Like, worst case scenario, it's a couple extra hundred ether we got to figure out that line, you know, whatever we tried, whatever we choose to do. And I think we had like, we had like 10 or 11 days notice on the Doge NFT. And I think at this time, maybe the original Tor NFT was out there as well. Uh, Jesse Powell, also our arch nemesis along the way there. But when the Doge NFT launched, we were like, man, this is like literally internet culture and an image, right? And this thing has been around the bend since 2013. You know, there's not a single millennial Gen Z online that doesn't know what the Doge is. And I remember when like, Years ago, my roommate was talking about Dogecoin. He's like, oh, but it's but it's the Doge. You want a picture of the Doge? And I remember being like, well, no, it's like just like a random meme cryptocurrency about the dog. You have no ownership. He's like, well, it's the closest thing you can get. And so when the Doge NFT came out, it's like you can actually own the image of the Doge. And it became the most like left or right curve experience ever, right? It's like, if you were sitting on either side, retail or Jedi, you were like, yeah, we have to buy it. If you were following anywhere in the middle, you're like, well, what's, what's the business case? What are we going to do here? And so then ultimately we bought it. You know, we purchased just, just the original. We weren't interested in any of like the, you know, the random tangential offshoots. And we started on a plan to like fractionalize because uh, one of our members, Andy, is the co-founder of Fractionalize, Fractional Art. And uh, we were thinking like, wow, you know, we could like fractionalize it and distribute ownership out to the community. Like we'll just like sell a portion of it. So ultimately we ended up doing that. It was months after we had acquired it though, like months and months and months down the line. And again, we have this ETH debt that's just like paying interest or trailing interest right now. And I don't think, I think we ended up launching it in like September. I think it was when we actually launched the Fractal Doge, but we'd acquired some other art along the way as well. And um, the initial like, fervor for buying fractionalized portions of the dog was it was ridiculous like the day that that auction went up on miso it shattered expectations beyond shattered like you know the amount of transactions flowing to the chain i had a lot of my friends and family were like wait what is going on like oh my god dude i can't i don't even know what's going on we just sold 20 percent of a dog image for 42 million dollars and so it was like one of those aha moments, like, you know, retailers arrived in the NFT landscape, they're here and they want exposure to literally everything. And so, you know, and all this just born out of like, 
you know, started from a tweet, just like random ragtag group of people. I don't know specifically the details of, it, of our raises, but like we've raised capital at this point in time from a number of you know prolific VCs all across the space. And so it's been a really transformational journey. Like the DAO itself, it's still functioning. It's, you know, it's still considered to be like, a, you know, one of the quote unquote blue chip DAOs, a pinnacle of how DAO should function. You know, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of pieces under the works. The Wu-Tang album, we haven't talked a lot about that, but, you know, full context, I can't go too deep on it, but we got wind that potentially this may be going up for sale. And I think we heard about it like midsummer. and the, for those that don't know the story of the Wu-Tang album, I'll give you a quick little refresher. The Wu-Tang back in 2013 produced arguably the world's first NFT. Uh, it's a one-of-one album. You know, at the time, music was going online. Uh, you know, the middleman is squeezing artists out for every last penny. You know, streams are not really paying you a ton of money. And so, like, music is to be this, like, cherished, you know, like, ordained experience. And it was just being, like, mass-produced and shoved down everyone's throat, really. So the Wu-Tang in secret created this one-of-one album, Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. And, you know, it comes in this beautifully ornate case. You know, it's a, a two-disc album, only one produced ever in the whole world. And originally, they, they decided to auction it. And I don't know specifically when it was purchased, I think, because it didn't really come out that they had done it. It was done for years before they actually auctioned it. But anyways, it ended up going for like, sold for two and something million dollars to Martin Shkreli, Pharma Bro, uh, internet villain. You know, he was very pompous about the ownership of it. He, you know, rumored to have used like, you know, CDs as coasters and like that kind of stuff. Now, I don't know if there's any truth to that because the music sounded great, you know, but like it comes with this really intricate legal contract. And so, you know, a great example is like at any point in time, like the living members of the Wu-Tang are able to attempt to steal the album back. And if they're successful, then ownership reverts to them. You know, they also added Bill Murray into that clause. And so, like, Bill Murray could uh, could attempt a heist at any time that the album is being played or being displayed in public. And if he steals it, well, guess what? It's Bill Murray's. And so there's, like, I don't know specifics, but I think it's like an 80-page legal document that details, like, the covenants around this piece of historical artwork. And so, you know, one of them is that you can't, like, you can't play it. It can't be, you know, it can't be, um, can't be recorded, can't be distributed online you know, massive penalties and fines around a lot of this. And so there's this whole legal framework around this intricate one-of-one music album that had to be navigated very, very, very carefully. And so, you know, our, our guys and our team that was working on it, it was months and months and months around facilitating, you know, conversations, you know, what's going on, understanding like how we could purchase it, you know, where it currently exists. So the Department of Justice seized the album from Martin Shkreli. I don't know if it was like 2016 or 2018 when he was indicted. They, you know, they decided that the proceeds to purchase the album were from ill-gotten gains and some corrupt dealings. And so they took that. And so as a part of purchasing the album, we uh, basically, in essence, paid off Martin Shkreli's debt to the Department of Justice. And so, you know, I think our, I don't know if the purchase price is public, probably, but whatever. It's full, we bought it for like $4 million at the time. And now it sits, you know, in a vault under a lock and key, basically. We have strict legal agreements around its custody. We had a listening party in NFT NYC for DAO members uh, and a few select individuals. 
We had to hire like, you know, ultra hard security around it. You know, no phones allowed on the premises. Everyone had to like hand things in, full pat down. It was in a completely nondescript location in the middle of Brooklyn during NFT NYC. There's like no social media presence allowed to talk about it. Very little pictures allowed to be taken while we're there. Very surreal experience, right? You're like a part owner of this thing. And it's like, you literally have to like ask a lawyer how you can talk about it. You know, prior to coming on this podcast, I got like TLDR on, you know, what I can and can't say, even, even to today, right? There's still a lot that's ongoing with it, but we have a full team now working on it. We're hoping to bring some kind of amazing experience to the, the retail masses uh, as time allows, time and energy and effort allows. And I think that we should hopefully have, you know, by later this year, have a whole better understanding of what that's going to mean for the, the Wu-Tang fans out there. But I will tell you, I've heard it. It's, it's fantastic. It was a very surreal experience. And I hope that uh, everyone listening that wants to hear it gets an opportunity to do so. Awesome. Thanks for just kind of walking through the history of PleaserDAO and, and also kind of sharing a little bit about the subjective nature of what it's like to participate in an auction. And it sounds like there's this emotion that ties all the PleaserDAO members together because you get to go through this experience that not very many people get to go through. So in wrapping up the pod, I've had you for a long time cognizant of, of the time you've given me. One of the questions I really like to ask our guests is, what does the smart economy mean to you? What is the smart economy? Yeah. So the smart economy, I think, you know, it distills down to, to an economy that works for you, not against you. So traditionally, you look at you know, how we fit into the overall macro landscape of finances and the economy at whole. Like, you know, traditionally, we are, you know, we're slaves to the man. And so a smart economy is one that allows you to be participating at scale for you know, little to no um, to work energy, right? The ability to invest in a yield aggregator that automatically farms and goes out and participates, harvest finance, you know, urine finance, whatever, you know, take your pick. But the ability to participate in these ecosystems where you can you can participate at scale without having to be the person who does that. You know, so your capital can work for you much easier than you can. You know, and the beauty of a, of a, of a smart economy is transparency, the ability to verify, not trust. And so I think that's that kind of distills it down is you know, ability to to verify, not have to trust. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming to join. We had a, a hard time getting our schedules lined up. So, um, you know, I understand you're really busy. So it was really cool to be able to pull your ear and to hear your experience as uh, a founding DAO member. I think the series is really going to be well-rounded out with um, Shapeshift talking about decorporatizing and then speaking from the legal aspect and then speaking with folks who coded infrastructure to be able to build DAOs on other networks and then to really like tie it off with your experience talking about Pleaser DAO. I'm really happy to have had your voice to be able to bring this series uh, to a close. So, Andrew, thank you so much for joining. It was an honor and a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, we're looking forward to it. And uh, thanks everyone who's listening. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? It was cool to hear about Andrew's experiences in different DAOs, from the grant distribution platform Gitcoin to the PleaserDAO Cultural Artifact Collective. It was also interesting to hear about an unknown side of championing proposals for DAOs that not everybody will always be in agreement with you. 
And it was just kind of awesome to hear Andrew share insights about a radical group of crypto native and non-natives who are new to the space who believe in doing crazy cool stuff. With that, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. This was the fourth and final episode of our inaugural series focusing on DAOs, and we're already working on the next series for the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you, and we look forward to catching you next time. Thank you.